here to set you free. Evening. It's about 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Dick Whaley. I may be going solo tonight. I thought Jim was going to be gone next week, but maybe it's this week. Uh, in any case, we'll find out what, what happened shortly, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, kind of a... Uh, Quiet news week. I overall, I would say, other you know, the sort of the big story of the American week was the uh, temporary defeat of the free trade bill, which we can talk about in a second. And uh, maybe I'll just start out very quickly with the uh, sort of wrap up of Cenotopia. I actually had some kind of bad luck yesterday and got a cab order that uh, sent me way out of town, so I missed. The, the movie or two that I wanted to see, but I was able to see uh, the Orson Welles documentary by Chuck Workman, Magician, The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles. Uh, this is a 2014 movie that originally uh, showed um, or premiered, I think, I guess is a better word, at the Telluride Festival uh, last year. And uh, I really recommend this work. Chuck uh, Workman took questions and answers after the movie. And I guess maybe the good news is that he sort of temporarily decided to not do documentaries and is going to be working more on experimental narratives. So we quickly mentioned the uh, Ann Arbor Film Festival to him, and he <laughs> ruefully noted, well, I've submitted work and it's been rejected. But this documentary about Orson Welles is outstanding, and I don't know if it's going to come out in DVD at any point, but it was an, a really outstanding homage to why Orson Welles, in his opinion, was uh, the greatest American independent filmmaker. And Chuck was part of the panel that I saw most of uh, the presentation at the Graduate Library. Uh, these were scholarly people, including... Um, Stefan Dresdler, who uh, runs the Munich um, Film Museum uh, that has a big chunk of uh, their uh, museum uh, dedicated to Orson Welles, as he put it, he saw F for fake and it changed his life. And the other interesting thing about the, uh, the panel uh, at the Graduate Library is that they are working on... Uh, one of the companies that works specially on, on restoring film is uh, working on some of these hard-to-find Orson Welles movies or unfinished movies, including Chimes at Midnight. Yeah, that's the Criterion Yeah, uh, that's collection. coming out with uh, supposedly some additions within the next year or two, probably available on DVD slash Blu-ray, whatever. 
And uh, the guy that sort of ran uh, Criterion was on a video conference uh, connection with with the panel. But anyway, back quickly back to Chuck Workman and the Orson Welles uh, sort of feature of the Cenotopia because I, I missed the one movie that I really wanted to see yesterday because of the cab order, but we won't go into that. Um, was uh, the the fact that Orson Welles, and you, you got an understanding from this documentary why Welles had problems finishing movies, but why he was perpetually making movies. And part of the reason was he, he carried a camera with him everywhere. And he was really into the the basics of movie making. Uh, and the flaw of his career was that he was simply unable at times to sort of properly delegate other responsibilities to other people. He tried to assume too much control of the movie. He pretty much tried to do everything, including acting in many of the movies. But this uh, magician, The Astonishing Life of Orson Welles, is just an outstanding documentary that I highly recommend uh, if it ever comes back on the big screen or probably is available uh, at this point on a DVD or Blu-ray. And uh, it will be interesting to see if uh, we see Chuck Workman again uh, with an experimental narrative movie. He said that he's got some documentary work still on the shelf. And uh, his ability to interview uh, famous directors of Hollywood, uh, actors that worked with Wells, uh, including some, some of the people that worked at the Mercury Theater, you just had this amazing sense of why Orson Welles was so powerful as a movie maker. Not only w were his stories uh, interesting um, in terms of their variety, but the lighting, the shots. Um, and he was frequently working on almost non-existent budgets. Whether he was ever blackballed from Hollywood uh, because of Citizen Kane is a an interesting theory, but I, I think that it's there's some probable evidence that he was. Well, Hollywood's always been an an industry and an art form, and there's always been tension between the business end of Hollywood and the creative end. Eric von Stroheim is probably the poster child for the silent era's conflict between art and commerce. Um, and Orson Welles sadly suffered much the same fate. Um, People didn't trust him with their money. Yeah. Uh, it's an expensive uh, business. It takes a lot of money and a lot of investors. And, of course, Wells is an auteur, uh, a single vision, a, a powerful director with a, with a creative impetus uh, to you know, lead an army. You know, the great Japanese director Akira Kurosawa was called the emperor uh, by people in the Japanese film sure. industry because that's how he ran his productions. And that's how Kubrick and Hitchcock and all the other great, you know, single name uh, director auteurs uh, were able to uh, sustain themselves, but they enjoyed more commercial success. Um, so for Wells, it was really a series of uh, bad luck. And uh, he. And one of his big problems. Pissed he, off some people yeah, in the money end of the. The spectrum. money end of it. Clearly, he was probably somewhat irresponsible. Uh, at, the, at that end of it, he needed a tighter bu business manager, as they say. But as one scholar put it quite well, he delivered R RKO, uh, asked for masterpieces, mm -hmm. and he delivered them. The problem was RKO didn't like 
aspects of the films. So they would chop them up and edit them and cut this out and add other stuff, right. add weird yeah. scenes. Like they apparently did that the, to Stroheim too. Yeah, the magnificent Ambersons has an end to the movie that's not in the book, which mm-hmm. is based on a novel by Booth Tarkington. So one of the one of the scholars pointed out that Wells delivered these masterpieces, and then of course it was his uh, sort of uh, pride. Uh, in his own creative genius, because clearly he he was, um, you know, the clips from the film spoke for themselves. And I think that it is great that Criterion is coming out with some sort of completed works. way overdue. I mean, uh, clearly Orson Welles is one of the great American filmmakers and probably the first true genius in American cinema of the sound era. Yeah, and they pointed out that the, at, at the panel that he was probably the first independent filmmaker, that, mm-hmm. to, so to speak, that he made movies, uh, pretty much wrote the script, figured out the lighting, worked on the camera well, shots. Well, he ran away from home as a teenager to go play Shakespeare uh, on the stage in yeah. Dublin. So this is a guy who had serious dramatic aspirations from a very early age. And that's why he was such an outstanding actor, Indeed. by the way. Um, they showed, mo- this this documentary showed a lot of uh, clips of his acting. And even when he performed for other directors, sometimes in these sort of cameo mm-hmm. appearances, like in Catch-22, where he plays the general. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a great... And then they interviewed Richard Benjamin, who said, oh, I'm in a movie in the same frame with Orson Welles. I'm so happy. My life has you know, been completed as a result. But, but it was parts like that that gave him the money to finish films like F is for Fake. Yeah. Um, you know, he's getting these goofy little films as the narrator in Start the Revolution Without Me, a hilarious Donald Sutherland, Gene Wilder, French Revolution comedy. And Orson Welles's part is very small, but it's very comical, and he he's not insulted by the part. He plays it with great gusto. <laughs> so. And as for the sled and the mystery, uh, Steven Spielberg apparently paid something like fifty thousand for the at auction, yeah, at an auction for the uh, the rosebud sled. And Orson Welles's response to Spielberg was, "But we burned it." <laughs> <laughs> Well, after the movie, the mystery has been solved. There were actually three sleds. Yeah, usually the... <laughs> you don't make just one prop. So, uh, very interesting. So I was sort of disappointed with my bad luck on seeing some of the other movies. But uh, the exhibit for Orson Welles' uh, works that have been do- donated uh, to the Graduate Library um, by a man named Wilson... And his first name is escaping me at the moment. But uh, there's still, uh, his papers are over there. uh, And uh, researchers apparently can go through them. All of the panelists said that the University of Michigan is the, uh, has been the most uh, accommodating library system for scholars that wish to examine Orson Welles' papers. And that goes for other things that are in in the in the U of M's uh, fast library collections. Mm. But uh, there's also a sort of uh, museum exhibit in the grad gallery room, I think is what it's technically called. So, uh, you know, check that out. There's some interesting aspects of his career. And uh, many of the clips of him on television were fascinating, too, because... 
some of the scholars were pointing out, you know, Wells made, of course, became famous because of the War of the Worlds radio uh, incident. Uh, back the Mercury in, Theater. Back in 1938. Yep. That's what gave him star power as an actor that Hollywood was willing to hire from time to time. Uh, he could bring in part of a crowd mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but it was interesting how he morphed from uh, media medium to media medium you know he he did make a bunch of television uh things when television came mm-hmm. out um and uh so he he went from radio to movies to television and he was an, a very interesting interviewee by the way that's one of the good things about this chuck workman documentary was uh how uh superb he was uh being interviewed where he was asked questions about various movies. And you could see that there were clearly some strange media manipulations of Orson Welles. Uh, his career, there were basically falsehoods probably put out to uh, keep him on the defensive, so to speak, to not allow... And Hearst was probably behind some of this stuff. Remember, of course, that Hearst was... Uh, part of the America First uh, movement, isolationist movement mm-hmm. in the 1930s. He was a virulent opponent of Orson Welles. Orson Welles, interestingly, went to Brazil during the Second World War uh, and shot the Brazilian people. This was supposed to be part of a <laughs> kind of propaganda film that the American government wanted to put out showing that it was... FDR had a very strong film program yeah. to uh, unite the Americas. And he famously said, uh, the two greatest actors in America are me and Orson Welles. Uh, And there was an element of truth to that. Uh, Certainly, FDR, his his use of radio and the fireside chat was uh, one of the most important aspects of the 20th century in terms of um, getting your message out. And this... Well, and getting it out effectively because... Anybody can yammer over the radio yeah. uh, if, you know, a microphone's put in front of their face. But his disarming, you know, personal charm uh, came through in those fireside chats. You can still listen to them and still be impressed with uh, the messages and the, the, the way they're put across. The content and the delivery and, you know, they estimate that there were some of his fireside chats that 80% of the American people tuned into. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, th- the uh, other fascinating aspect about Orson Welles in this subtitle, Magician, was that he was into <laughs> elements of magic and illusion, optical illusion and whatnot. And uh, that was why some of his movies are just so, you know, if like even his Shakespeare movies with the sort of cornball sets, you know, that you can tell are low-budget mm-hmm. operations— because he, he, he filmed a lot of these on in third world countries. Um, just remarkable acting. <laughs> remarkable presentation of Shakespeare. Wells certainly goes down in history as one of the great Shakespearean actors, period. So, uh, you know, check out his, his works, flawed as they are. Uh, the scholarly panel noted some of the problems with uh, why, you know, soundtracks were sometimes a little... Mm. maybe off kilter a bit, mm-hmm. mistimed, seemed like you were in a kind of a hall of mirrors, so to speak, lady from Shanghai. Mm. 
Uh, but hit the shots themselves, the use of lighting, uh, he was one of the most brilliant black and white directors ever in my book. So maybe we've talked too much about him, but I think that was one of the great highlights of the Cenotopia uh, was the presentation of some of the more uh, obscure Orson Welles works, and I wish I could have gone to more. Well, I, for one, am just glad that uh, finally Chimes at Midnight is going to be available in a home video. I just keep missing that film, and it's one I've been reading about uh, for decades. Um, well, there were several Wells scholars, because the, the uh, documentary interviewed a couple of Wells sort of Ph.D. specialists. Mm -hmm. One of them said Chimes of Midnight is his greatest movie. Well, if it's greater than Citizen Kane and Touch of Evil, and even the Magnificent Ambersons, I think, has got outstanding aspects, uh, I want to see it. <laughs> I hear he plays Falstaff. Right, and it's a sort of an amalgam of bits and pieces from a couple of Shakespeare plays, The Merry Wives of Windsor, and uh, some of the other Falstaff material from the Henry IV, Henry V plays. Um, yeah, Orson Welles, uh, a true... Master of the craft. And as I mentioned, the uh, so-called gallery uh, room over at the Graduate Library has still, I think, I think that goes on for several more uh, months, uh, an exhibit um, featuring some historical aspects of his career, memorabilia, uh, blown up letters that were written personally. Yeah. And you, you get a sense of why he had so many difficulties um, I think that it is interesting that they're still discovering reels mm -hmm. of Orson Welles' film. Yep. Uh, it would be nice to see if Mr. Ferguson from San Francisco <laughs> get a hold of some of that stuff. <laughs> well, uh, just a quick mention of, uh, of course, uh, his uh, appearance as an actor in Carol Reed's The Third Man is probably his most famous uh, part in film acting. Uh, but I would also like to remind listeners of his performance in The Stranger, uh, where he plays a Nazi uh, who is trying to make it as an American after the war. And he's married an American and he's trying to pass himself off as a professor. Edward G. Robinson is uh, his uh, nemesis in that film. Edward G. always good uh, with the detective role. Uh, so uh, that's a very fine film indeed as well. The Stranger. Yeah, and it was, it was even interesting to see Charlton Heston interviewed for Touch of Evil when they brought Wells in to direct the movie because apparently um, they were only going to use him as the actor, the, the crooked uh, detective. Mm. They were having problems, quote, finding a director, and Charlton Heston was on the phone, and he said, well, why don't you have Orson Welles direct the movie? He's a pretty good director, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to give Charlton Heston some credit for that. And that, by the way, has been uh, restored in a very uh, interesting print. Anyway, um, what, one interesting big kind of big story, and this this will uh, is uh, is still unfinished business, was the temporary defeat of the free trade agreement, whatever they're calling it these days. Mm. Um, I think I wonderfully did not bring the one item that I had specifically on it 
Uh, but uh, in, in any event, I did want to point out or show something that sort of underscores this was called a victory for organized labor, why this is uh, still a po major political issue and probably maybe one of the decisive campaign issues in the 2016 election. I suspect that some sort of deal will be made eventually, but as it's currently written, and it's fascinating that Wiki, WikiLeaks got involved in this. They <laughs> leaked a copy of the so-called negotiations. I don't know how authentic that was. Uh, there are, by the way, a reason for secrecy in negotiations uh, between sovereign powers. Uh, I don't think there's a massive cover-up involved with confidentiality and secrecy regarding negotiations. But it's interesting that in 1973, 24.2% uh, of the private sector were union members. And in 2014, that has shrunk to 6.6%. This, of course, is at the heart of the ongoing debate about um, income inequality. Mm -hmm. There's no question that union workers tend to make more money than um, non-union workers. And who has who gets to have insurance. Insurance, benefits, etc. But I think it's very important in, in evaluating arguments regarding the free trade uh, stuff in general to remember that in 1973, global economic conditions were completely different. China and the Soviet Union, as it was called back then, were sort of closed societies. Uh, there wasn't a, a lot of trade between the East and the West. There was trade, by the way. It wasn't completely closed. Um, the United States famously used to have a wheat deal with the Soviet <laughs> Union to benefit American farmers. Uh, but China... Uh, has completely revolutionized the global economy. I heard today uh, that uh, on the news that there are a million new millionaires in China. I mean, that's just, the numbers are staggering. So let's remember that literally 1.5 billion people, and I'm not even including Eastern Europe here. Or let's throw into the mix the development and growth of India as an sure. economic power. Uh, Brazil. Yeah. Mexico. These are all countries that are now significant international players. So it's very important in understanding why things are so different now uh, regarding these arguments. And, and you know, this has been trumpeted as a big victory for organized labor. Um, my suspicion, if if there never is a deal made and the Democrats will be portrayed as the villains here, and the Republicans, the right-wing Republicans that join the Democrats to prevent a bill from being passed, uh, that will not be held accountable by the GOP. Um, and of course, one corporate spokesman said, well, corporations were almost 100% in favor of this deal. Apparently, one of the exceptions were the uh, generic drug makers. So... Uh, pay attention to what happens in the next couple of weeks regarding some slight modifications in, in the deal. Uh, you should be a little nervous if uh, the corporations all think it's great. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that the, the, the sort of the common critique of the defeat of this bill 
is that um, basically the argument is, well, then the Asian companies, uh, Asian, Asian countries will determine the free trade rules, not America, and that they will simply follow China's lead. One of the reasons, by the way, that China has so much more influence uh, globally now uh, in these kinds of problems and whatnot is the astonishing growth and uh, increase in how much uh, foreign aid they give mm -hmm. compared to the United States. Of course, the United States sits around and debates what they're going to do about ISIL in uh, the sands of northeast Syria and northwest Iraq. <laughs> uh, and, of course, if you read scholars on the, the uh, viability of uh, radical Muslim states that are modeled after ISIS, they all fall apart even when they take control of an area because they end up being very poor at actually running the government. Uh, which is kind of similar to, say, the Tea Party. Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> hmm, I'm seeing a comparison here at all. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And also remember that in 1973, skilled labor uh, in the form of manufacturing, w globally in the western part of the economy, was, was scarcer. Uh, this is because of the incredible carnage that happened as a result of World War II. Labor is not scarce anymore, and that's mm -hmm. because of the incredible population increase that is connected to all sorts of new problems that we're confronted with in the 21st century. And multinationals are going to gravitate towards cheaper labor. So some of the income inequality is explainable by the decline of union membership, but a lot of it is explainable by the incredible overcompensation that CEOs get, for instance, and the fact that capital is, is, is being rewarded for all of the benefits in productivity that are occurring in the economy. So the future of the American economy is incredibly perilous with many things that are going on. And this, there are lots of moving parts that have nothing to do with free trade agreements, as we know. Technology is displacing assembly line style workers. Uh, and that era is over, and uh, it's, it's sorry to report that, but it's important to understand why unions have declined in America. Part of it is um, sort of the Ronald Reagan uh, era of attacking unions, and it's very troubling that Scott Walker, um, who is not officially announced as a presidential candidate, but is being promoted as, you know, going after the unions in Wisconsin, that this is why he should be president of the United States. Well, if only 6.6% .6 of the private sector of the American economy are in unions, I don't see why union membership is such a problem. <laughs> the problem should be more directed as to why are corporations evading taxes by setting up uh, multinational shell companies in tax havens abroad. Where is their patriotism? They wave the American flag all the time on television. Uh, why are CEOs being compensated at 10 to 20 times the rate that they used to be? And why are CEOs even being given massive salaries when they're incompetent? 
In many cases, yeah. Case in point, Carly Fiorina running for president. Now, I don't give her a chance for actually winning the Republican nomination, but uh, it's pretty remarkable that somebody with her track record as a corporate CEO is trying to promote herself as uh, somehow competent uh, to run the United States of America while she takes pot shots at Hillary Clinton. Oh, well. Well, the uh, faux populism of the uh, anything that smells like a tax must be bad and therefore removed. Um, as we've pointed out many times, taxes are where the roads and the schools and the traffic lights and the hospitals and all of that comes from. So at some point, you've got to be uh, in support of uh, taxation because it's the fabric that holds society together. As long as everyone's paying their fair share, shouldn't be a problem. And I even question the conventional wisdom that the Republican Party is the friend of the corporation. They're really the friends of the fetus, the gun lobby, and the Pentagon. And these crazy... And the racist. <laughs> these crazy ideas about... You know, I read last week that there are some new ideas about uh, sending heavy arms to the Ukraine. Well... <laughs> I don't know where that's going to end up, but it's fascinating to report that back on the 20th of February, it said after months of talks, Turkey and the United States on Thursday, this is dated the 20th of February earlier this year, signed an agreement to train and equip moderate Syrian rebels to fight militants from ISIL, Foreign Minister uh, Mevlut Kavsoglu uh, said, according to the Turkish news agency, he also suggested that the fighters could join the rebellion against the Syrian government. Although American officials have emphasized that the primary goal is to combat the Islamic State, known as ISIS or ISIL. Turkey, along with Jordan and Saudi Arabia, will provide training sites for the program which is scheduled to begin in March and is expected to train about 15,000 fighters over three years. Um, where they come up with this magic number of 15,000, I hear this number repeated over and over and over. Look, to defeat ISIL, it's going to take about 250,000. So all of these hawkish ideas are, are pie in the sky, pointless. Well, and let's say you succeed and defeat ISIL. This is like, you know, smashing a little blob of quicksilver on a tabletop. It's going to splinter and scatter. And sure. there's going to be another ISIL with a different name and a different dude with a beard uh, emerging uh, in its wake. So, And this sort of historic area that they supposedly control, of course, is exceedingly vulnerable. How fascinating to learn that in the... Uh, Kurdish area of Syria, there have been recent gains by Kurdish militia that are now alarming against ISIL, that are now alarming the Turkish government. <laughs> so these shifting sands of these alliances involving Turkey, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, in which uh, Turkey's interests are sort of uh, murky, if not completely revealed, Factually to the American people or, you know, listening to John McCain shooting his himself in the foot for the 150th time is pretty remarkable stuff. Um, obviously, uh, ISIL is going to take 
quite quite a quite a bit of time to defeat. And as for training fifty thousand um, counterinsurgents, whatever you want to call them, in uh, Jordan and Saudi Arabia over the next three years, wow, <laughs> we'd be better off training uh, 